0: Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I am your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Pranjal Chabay. Pranjal has built a number of successful products in the field of oil and gas, also educational robotics and ed tech, which has reached over a million end consumers. He's also experienced in building high-performance engineering teams from scratch and has reinvented himself as a data science professional. Pranjal, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, hey Ben, uh, thank you for inviting me over, and uh, I'm glad that you pronounced my name perfectly for <laughs> I think I think that's that's quite amazing, and yeah, a lot of people find it very hard to pronounce. And yeah, I've I've been doing a lot of work in the field of uh, engineering, and I have sort of transition into data science and yeah I'm liking
0: it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we're gonna dig into that. And I was curious, how has your passion for trading financial markets impacted your priorities when it comes to skill building?
1: Oh that's a that's like a straight up hard (laughs) one okay. Oh okay so uh uh well To to put it, uh, you know, pretty straight, you know, very straightforward manner, what happened that I started, you know, getting into a little bit of trading cryptocurrencies, bitcoins uh, in, in 2017. And in 2017, anyone who put money in cryptocurrencies got lucky because that was like the craziest bull market, you know, we have ever seen. And I got lucky, and I made decent money. And I thought, oh wow, I'm a trader. Like you know, I can I can do it. I can now I'm a genius. And then as soon as the year ended, I think in December and January twenty seven twenty eighteen, uh, you know the whole thing came down. You know everybody knows uh, what it was pretty bad. So so that's where I also lost a lot of money. Uh, so. So that's when I felt that, okay, I'm not exactly a genius and I need to learn how to trade. And I had been looking at charts for quite a while by that time. And I had seen, you know, certain patterns and certain, what do you say, indications that that gave me, a, you know, an idea that, okay, whether I should be buying something or I'm going to sell. But of course, you know, there's a lot of human emotion involved in that because when you see your investment grow like four or five X in a matter of two months, you're like, wow. Okay. Now you, you, you don't want to sell it at that time. Although, I mean, the wisdom says that you should sell, but, <laughs> but what happens when when you are actually in it, right? And when you are right there, you have seen your money grow five X and you and somebody says that uh, you know dude you should be selling and you're like dude I you you like you this is not something that you sell right it's, it has got 5x it's probably going to go 5x more in the next two months you know, that's that's how your trader psyche you know traps you at that time and that's exactly what happened so, so what I figured that if I can you know have this system in a more um um, systematic in a more algorithmic way, as, as they call it. Right? Like if, if, if I if I take my emotions out from the system and let the system do its job, then probably, you know, I won't suffer the kind of losses that I did. Even though I kind of made made up uh, over, over the next period of almost one one and a half years. But but yes, I mean, at that time it was pretty bad. So. So so that's when I felt okay. Let's let's just automate all of this. So, like, can we automate all of this? I have these charts. I have this data coming in. Can we get the data feed in, and you know, I can have some rules and you know that kind of things. So that's when I felt that okay, uh, you know, let's let's move on with learning Python because you know, just a simple Google search will tell you that Python is the is the programming language. Right mm. now and uh, if you're if you're doing anything i mean anything it's it's just very easy to get started so so that's how i I figured that you know if I want to do this, the first thing i want i should be knowing or learning is you know learning how to code and just to just to give you a little bit of background that I had been an electronics engineer okay, so I knew a little bit of um, Embedded programming. I mean, I would say a little bit, but I would say like a lot of it. That I had been doing uh, embedded systems programming before, but it, it has all been, you know, very. Mm, I mean, I don't know if you know, if you have seen how embedded systems, you know, are, are coded. I mean, it's it's just uh, it's not very uh, how to say it. it's not very high level. Like Python is a high level programming. Oh, so
2: mm-hmm. so, so it's
1: like pretty much down at the register level, you're manipulating registers, bits and you're actually working at the level of bits. So, so I had never done something like this before. And I had like the last time I had programmed was like three, four years ago when I decided to do this. So I was kind of out of touch with coding as well. And So yeah, that's, that's how I figured that, okay, I need to learn Python and the first thing I need to do is, you know, get going with coding skills in Python before anything else.
0: Nice. Have you, have you looked into like the quantopian, uh, or quant connect platforms where they let you, supposedly they let you, um, keep all your intellectual property that you make for trading, uh, algorithms, but you can, you get like free data and they have like contests where like, apparently you can like win and then, uh, people can invest in your algorithms if they have good performance. What do you think about those platforms?
1: Uh, I have uh, explored Quantopian a lot, uh, primarily because I had been using Zipline, their algorithmic trading uh, library in Python. Okay. And however, I when I looked at this aspect, like I checked out. Okay, they said like you can you know submit a strategy and it's going to be yours, and you're going to pay some. You'll be paid some commission based on the amount of money they invest on your strategy, something on those lines. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: I figured that, okay, there is a lot of competition over there. And there are people who have been in this field, find like quantitative uh, analysis, quant- quantitative analytics, whatever you want to call it, have mm-hmm. been there for quite a while. And I mean, there's really no point for me to actually go there and compete with those guys because I just felt that I'm just starting off with this. I have, you know, I've just had an epiphany that, you know, you know <laughs> I, I need to do this. Yeah. I need to have a system that trades on its own. And I cannot just go and compete with those guys like, you know, a bunch of super intelligent Asians and Russians over there who are like, Mass math, math wizards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, like, no, that's that's probably not the way to start. Maybe someday, if I feel that okay, I've made a niche for myself, I have an edge, then maybe I would give it a shot. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. But uh, uh, but at that time, I didn't see that I should I should go for it. So I decided to keep it simple and mm-hmm. like like really simple at that time.
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm super passionate about that stuff. Um, if I'm not careful, I'll just, we'll just sit here and talk market stuff for the next hour. But, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I did have a question for you, um, uh, about PyTorch. I, I know that you are passionate about this project. You like, you like what they have to offer. And I was wondering why, why should we, uh, in the audience, check out PyTorch?
1: Okay, so so that's that's a very good question, and interestingly, I, I actually went to a, a Facebook developer circles data science meetup uh, today in, in the afternoon. and um, just a, a bunch of people are uh, asking the same question, right? Whether you should they should start off with TensorFlow or right. whether they should go with PyTorch. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in my opinion, I think PyTorch is uh, the way to move forward. If you' okay. are doing some serious uh, machine learning and AI stuff hmm. uh, and I, and I have my own personal views for that so um, a good uh, 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 example would be um, think about web frameworks okay so there are two kinds of frameworks. one is your something called as an opinionated framework like. Think about Django. It's, a, it's an opinionated framework, and then there's something called as Flask, which is um, what people call it like unopinionated. Okay, basically not opinionated. So the deal with an opinionated framework is in a web in a web context, okay? a web framework is that you whatever you want to build, okay, there are widgets for everything. Okay, they have this kind of a You know, plugin store, you can go and just get whatever plugin you want, put in a widget, you know, your app, web app, website, whatever, it's ready in no time. However, if you want to do something, some customization, if you want to do something which is not there, okay, if you have some custom widget in your mind or, you know, something which is not already there, then it gets really, really difficult. Okay, then it, then it gets hard. So the same case I feel is with TensorFlow and PyTorch. So if you Google the term TensorFlow versus PyTorch, you'll come across a lot of these articles where they'll show, okay, there's four lines for, for, for TensorFlow, four or five lines, you'll have a convolutional neural network classifier ready, and then like 10, 15 lines for PyTorch. As a newbie, I mean, even when I was looking at it for the first time, I felt that, why would anybody, you know, work with PyTorch? You go with TensorFlow, you're doing like four lines of code in what other framework is probably taking 15 lines. But when you actually start coding uh, your machine learning algorithms, like convolutional neural networks, long and short term maybe, LSTMs, you use a lot of LSTMs if you want to predict stock data, especially, and, you know, a lot of NLP based stuff so what happens when you're actually writing the code for your particular application,
0: there are a lot of
1: nuances to it. Okay? When you're training your machine learning algorithm, there could be a lot of nuances. Those nuances are very easy to implement if you're using PyTorch. However, it gets really difficult if you want to do it in TensorFlow. So um, hmm. let, me, let me think if I can give an example for this. Mm, if I had been doing something recently. So, so recently I, I, I've been uh, working on a project where I'm trying to build an AI which uh, looks at an image and tells you what, is, what, what it's looking at. Okay, so let's say if I show this image, it will probably say like one person sitting in front of a microphone, or a person with a headphone, okay, that kind of stuff. So, so how it how it works? I, I'll give you a you know, rough idea. So, so, so you have the image. You scan the image with convolution neural networks. Convolution neural networks are used for. Uh, deep learning based image processing okay they, they are used everywhere therefore you require very high accuracy so so you scan the image with convolution your networks and the con- cnns we call it call them cnns the cnns will give you uh what do you say a f- set of features okay those set of features you actually plug in uh, into an lstm along with whatever is the label with that image okay so this is a supervised learning example so you show them a lot of images with a lot of captions and then you show them a new image and you know they generate the caption on their own. so so you plug this into an lstm along with the caption that you had and you train the lstm again over the you know over the whole data set and eventually your system will be good enough if you have a gpu Basically, if you have a good GPU, uh, your system will be good enough to actually, you know, give decent text on show, if you show it to if you show it any image. Okay, mm-hmm. it will try to caption it, you know, in a decent way. So, so this particular problem, there is a lot of engineering going on. When you're actually building this network, when you're actually de- connecting your CNN with the LSTM, right? It's, it's going on at the at a very lower level, okay? So it's not like the output of CNN is going into LSTM, you no, know, it doesn't happen that way. There's a lot of low level engineering that goes on, along with a lot of technicalities that take place when you're training the network, okay? So when you're Training it, you are training the CNNs, and then you are training the LSTMs. So there's a there's a lot of you know a uh, lot of nuance to it. Doing it in Python uh, in PyTorch is, I mean, it comes just naturally in PyTorch. You have access to what is going on inside CNN. You have access to what is going on in, inside LSTM. You just you know build that connection. Mm-hmm. And when you're training them, you you just you know you, you since you have access to whatever is going on in all of these layers of CNNs and LSTMs, it just makes it more convenient for you to implement your logic. However, if you look at the TensorFlow API, especially when you do the uh, you know, TensorFlow versus PyTorch searches, you'll see that TensorFlow has that model dot fit something like Scikit-Learn. Okay? So, so it abstracts away a lot of stuff that is going on on the back end, which might be good if you, if you just don't know anything and you just want to you know, you know, put in a CNN together and see how it works. But as soon as you want to actually do something with it and you know, build an application, it gets very difficult. Hmm. And apart from that, I mean, apart from the ease of implementing the model that is in your head, PyTorch is also quite fast, so so they did a you know, comparison between TensorFlow 2.0 and PyTorch, because there has been a lot of debate that okay, TensorFlow has been, uh, you know, purpose built for being in production. It's not purpose built for doing your R&D, you know, all those crazy models and all those things. It's for mm-hmm. production. You put a model in production, you put it through TensorFlow, and it's the fastest ability. However, when they when people have actually uh, you know, made a comparison. Uh, a lot of uh, Kaggle grandmasters, a number of Kaggle grandmasters have, have done it. What they found that Pytorch is either as fast as TensorFlow, or probably sometimes even faster than TensorFlow.
2: Okay, so, crazy.
1: So, so that's like uh, Pytorch has actually uh, gone up in popularity like like Bitcoin in 2017.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, you you see, you see you see that graph, and, and and this graph is not going to come down. This graph is yeah, not going this, to. Yeah.
0: This down. one is this one is going to continue to go up. Yeah, who's a, so who's behind that project? Do you know?
1: So so there's a there's, there's an uh, interesting story. That, so there's a guy called uh, Somit Chintala. He uh, I mean he he's an Indian and he actually happens to be from from the city where I am right now where I live. Uh, he's he's a native from this place. Um, okay, cool. And he he has an interesting story how he actually built PyTorch. So, so he had been working in you know AI labs in US, and, you know, in some of these top universities, and he had been like building tools for himself. And through that experience, he ended up in FAIR, which is Facebook AI Research, okay, which is the Facebook's AI arm, headed by Jan LeCun, who is you know who is a legend. And there they started off with TensorFlow. So so they, when Google came out with TensorFlow, I think in 2014 or 15. Um, so so their Facebook you know took it took it with both hands. Everybody was using TensorFlow. They also started using TensorFlow, and they realized that it was really bad.
2: <laughs> okay,
1: and I mean I won't use exact words that you know I've seen him say in some of the interviews but it was really bad. like he, he's, not, he's
0: like very uh, opinionated like how, how <laughs> bad it is.
1: And, and he hated it and the Facebook engineers didn't like it so, so that was the whole lead and then they decided guys we have to do it on our own. Okay. and since this guy had experience in building, uh, you know, AI tools. So interestingly, he's not, I mean, at at that time, he was not exactly an AI algorithms person. He was a person who was building tools for people who were building AI Mm -hmm. in in research community. And since he had that experience, they asked him to, you know, lead this project and build something that everybody can use, especially the research community. So, so that's how they came up with PyTorch, and initially it was so focused for research purpose that you cannot use it in production. For oh, the longest wow. time, PyTorch could not be used in production. So, so even though you have you have to use, uh, you know, you are probably using PyTorch when you're you know testing out things, you know, you know testing your model fitting on your data set, but when you're pushing it for production, you have to convert it into TensorFlow. Hmm. So, that used to be uh, the story for quite a long time, but they, I think they, they changed it with version 1.0 if I'm not wrong. Okay. And, and now, it's, now it's, it's out there, you can deploy it using SageMaker, AWS SageMaker.
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah. This, um, cause I, my experience with uh, doing AI type stuff has all been Keras and TensorFlow. So this has given those guys a run for their money is what it sounds like.
1: <laughs> I, I would say that Keras is pretty good. and. Uh, maybe i mean i have not used keras i have like you know seen some code snippets around maybe i would be happy if someday they integrate it with you know pytorch as a backend uh,
0: yeah I, I i wonder yeah cuz that that's how keras was kind of designed was to just plug into these different backends and and so you're saying pytorch is actually a replacement for tensorflow that that like if you were trying to do a google search comparison that's a reasonable search to say PyTorch versus TensorFlow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. and what I what I see is that with PyTorch, when you when you like it's, it's starting off right from zero, it gets a little intimidating, and that's where you know a lot of people would drift towards okay. know, TensorFlow and chaos because it looks easy. But you know, if that little bit of you know, roadblock, if they can remove that and make it, you know, more you know, beginner friendly, I, I think it's, it's an insanely amazing framework for machine learning
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And actually, I do want to dig in to, so when, when learning to write code in uh, PyTorch, for example, what would be kind of the first uh, things that you recommend a, a newbie kind of pick up is there, or should they kind of start somewhere else with the end in mind to kind of go there? Can, can you kind of uh, shed some light on that?
1: Okay. So if somebody is looking to learn PyTorch, hmm, first thing I would recommend is, uh, of course, I assume that they know Uh My recommendation is to get a little bit of knowledge about how NumPy works because a lot of uh, things that, you know, a lot of functions and features that NumPy has, PyTorch has exactly those same features. And it's like one of those, one of the reasons why the research community just loves PyTorch because NumPy is their thing, right? NumPy is was designed for all these scientific computations and all. And PyTorch incorporates all of those features and of course a lot more.
0: Okay. So
1: I would recommend that you get yourself conversant with Numpy. You don't have to, you know, get into a lot of details, but you should know how it works and you know, do a few practice projects maybe. And then I would recommend that you take up a course uh, in PyTorch, which is specifically to make you learn PyTorch. Okay. Uh, my recommendation would be There is a course on Udacity, it's called Introduction to Deep Learning, if I'm not wrong. It's a free course, okay? It's not a paid course, you do not have to pay anything for that. It's a free course, and if somebody wants to learn PyTorch, they should totally take a bad course, They go from the absolute basics, like right from zero, and they, you know, they lead you to building, uh, they help you to build, a complete uh, classification system on MNIST Fashion dataset and those MNIST uh, you know handwritten images and uh, and it's and it's very uh, methodical and very detailed and okay. it's not really long you know you can probably do it over a weekend so it's, it's not that long.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm just taking some notes actually because that would probably be a cool link to put in the show uh, description. So, okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. And um, uh, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Did you have more to color in, or that that's enough to kind of get you started? Uh, uh,
1: there, I have found one. I mean, of course, if you if you just you know do a Google search, Python, sorry, Pytorch for UVs or Pytorch for beginners, you'll find tons and tons of articles on you know Medium, Towards Data Science blog, and all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. However, I've come across one particular blog post that I feel is pretty amazing. I mean, I'll, I'll share the link with you. You can you can you can share it with your you know with the viewers, and um, because I need to actually look it up at the moment, I don't have it right, okay. right away. Uh, so so in that, uh, the guy has actually started off with regression basic regression okay and then he shows you how to do it with pytorch and just like you know baby steps and he takes you through the absolute basics of pytorch right down to you know training and you know training your model and everything
0: cool yeah i look forward to seeing that resource Yeah, yeah that man that's so baby steps that's always nice starting out (laughs)
1: yeah i I think that one particular article stood out for me apart from i mean there's of course there's like huge amount
0: yeah yeah the reason that i ask is because like you like you just said you know you pop that stuff in google you'll get millions of results back like when you're starting out just that's too much right there that's even too much like you just need some guidance to some good resources and so that's i'm super happy to leverage your expertise it sounds like we can kind of go in those directions and, and we won't be let down or yes. we'll give them a way to contact you and they can give you help.
2: <laughs> sure. sure,
0: No, I, I think every, everything that you've said uh, so far makes a lot of sense. So I was curious, uh, what do you recommend that doesn't take much effort to learn, but solves like 80% of the challenge of kind of getting up to speed with, you know, like that Pareto principle. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have some uh, ideas on this?
1: so so my my question would be like uh what exactly you're trying to learn
0: okay <laughs> yeah i mean if it's like time series um forecasting i guess it would be different than if you're trying to do image recognition yeah. or okay um what what would be like um your expertise like your the niche that you've kind of carved out yourself like are you specializing in any or have you chosen is it more like image recognition that you're choosing to specialize in?
1: Well, I initially chose to specialize in uh, time series mm-hmm. because of obvious reasons, since I was working with time series. Uh, right. But later on, I actually got really interested in this whole field of deep learning. Okay. Um, you know, I as as it happened that I got a scholarship from Facebook called Facebook Secure and Private AI Scholarship. Hmm. And uh, I happened to go, get through it. I think out of seven thousand people, they selected three hundred people.
0: Wow! Congrats! And that's crazy.
1: Thank you. Uh, and, I, and I got that scholarship. I, I, by the way, I've got a few more scholarships. So, so yeah, I'll tell you about them as well.
0: Yeah, please <laughs> so, do. That's really cool.
1: So, so I got that scholarship, and as part of the what do you say, the final, you know, level. Uh, we were given. Uh, we have been given access to computer vision nanodegree at Udacity, which I think is like a thousand or fifteen hundred dollar course, which is fairly expensive. And we have been giving free access to it, um, and and that's when I felt that okay, computer vision is also quite interesting. And uh, I mean, I, I tell you a few interesting insights. Like, you know, even though when we are talking about stocks, we we say that, okay, we are doing time series, but, you know, some of the top hedge firms in the world, they are actually using a lot of computer vision as well.
2: Okay. And,
1: and and how they use it is is quite fascinating. They have built models that capture data from, you know, data from satellite on a daily basis. Okay. There are, there are a number of companies which provide, which will provide you uh, complete uh, imagery of Earth, updated daily. Okay. Crazy. Of course, that's, that's crazy expensive. As sure. Yeah. I mean, for sure, but uh, they will do that. And once you have access to this kind of a data source, you can, let's say you're, ta- you're looking at the stocks of Target or Costco, you know, or Walmart, you can actually start focusing on, their you know stores wherever they have in the us and you can actually then start figuring out those small rectangles which are cars of people right and with that data you can over a period of three months have a decent enough estimate of their earnings trust me i mean they actually do that yeah they have an estimate of their earnings, even before Walmart or Costco actually announces. That's, yeah. I mean, that just blows my mind.
0: It's crazy, yeah. There's no limits with those guys.
1: Yeah. Yes, I mean, <laughs> they're going, you know, they're just going to whatever lens possible. So, so they, they do that, they, they, they observe these stores, they observe their parking lots. They basically observe parking lots. Uh, to estimate the earnings, and apart from that, I also got to know that uh, uh, I actually came across a paper where they had. I mean, it's, it's just crazy to, to think about it. So, so you have these uh, oil refineries, okay? And you, the, the way they manufacture an oil refinery, where they actually keep an oil, okay? It's just like a huge tank. It's like massive size of I don't know two or three buildings, really high. The top of that uh, you know, top of that building, okay, the top of that container. I, I, I'm not sure what exactly is the right word for it, but mm-hmm. let's call it container. The top of that container, you know, goes up and down uh depending upon how much oil is filled inside. Okay.
0: Oh, a float of some sort of floating top.
1: Yeah, it floats yeah. on that crude oil and if you see how sun shines and how this thing is, okay, the shadow of this building, okay, the shadow of the of the rooftop will actually give you an estimate how much crude oil you're storing.
0: The volume in that, holy yes. cow. That's, that's crazy, that's, man. I mean,
1: that's that's, that's crazy.
0: crazy. So, I mean, computer vision is like um, certainly a thriving field then. Like you're, is this kind of, Are you kind of going down that path, or like is computer vision like your your thing now? It's kind of Uh, what it sounds like, but
1: (laughs) I mean, uh, I would say that I've become—I wouldn't say really good, but I now I have a grasp on the subject. Yeah, but uh, I'm not sure if I'll be able to go down that path because, at least for my particular application, Mm -hmm. getting access to this kind of data, you need. I mean, apart from the fact that you need to have a lot of money to yeah. access the data, you need to have a lot of computational power as well. Mm, yeah. You need to have, I mean, to process those kind of images on a daily basis, I mean, yeah, uh, that's, that's, a, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, you need to, You yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, but that's kind of the beauty of the Amazon Web Services, like um, getting acquainted with those skills. Like, would you say that's part of the, like maybe trying to like, let's say you're trying to exploit um, what artificial intelligence has to offer kind of like the 80% of that challenge. Like you, 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 there's like some math probably challenges and then just like general programming and then like how you deploy it. I'm thinking like the cloud is kind of maybe something we should get acquainted with or what are your opinions on kind of like like getting getting that 80% up to speed for general artificial intelligence, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so so what I understand is uh, you you probably want to do some kind of uh, time series stuff and get done with like 80% of it, like in the fastest possible way. I mean, mm-hmm. did I get your question correct? I think so, yeah. Okay, so, mm, so if you want to get on, uh, get most other things done um what i would suggest is um, okay that, that's uh, okay so you can start with of course i mean few things there are no real shortcuts for a few of the things for a few of the steps like you need to know how to use python you need to learn python okay, okay but, but of course you do not have to get into a lot of details or like classes and decorators and stuff but you need to you know be acquainted with python and then you need to be acquainted with numpy and pandas because without them you cannot do any real data science okay okay and then uh, of course you need to learn a machine uh, learning framework i mean my personal of course now you know it's, it's PyTorch. Mm-hmm. you can go with with that particular PyTorch tutorial if you want, okay? And once you have a hang of these things, then you can, you know, what I would probably suggest you is do a lot of experimentation. You know, if you, if you are looking just to get this done, okay, you know, get this done and get moving, beyond learning, PyTorch. I don't think you need to get into a lot of depth with a lot of things. What you can do is you start checking out all these articles which are being published on Medium, pretty much on a daily basis right now. Okay. okay, there are a lot of examples of you know doing time series prediction using LSTMs, using using you know machine learning, AI, and all that. And and those guys will also give you a code. They will also explain how to do it. So so I think what then what it all becomes is boils down to is how fast and how much you can experiment. Okay. You you have a lot of different ideas from a lot of different people. You start you know applying that. You start actually applying that on actual time series data that you have that is coming to you from Mm. exchanges or whatever. Okay. So uh, and and right now it's it's pretty easy. You can go to Kaggle and you can download a data set.
2: Yeah. So you
1: don't even have to you know get a whole pipeline going or you know learn how to you know scrapes you know, website and all that kind of stuff. You don't mm. have to do that. You can just go and search for. I mean, if you're doing for cryptocurrencies, you can search for Bitcoin and get a data set. If you want to do stocks, you get a stocks data set. It's that easy. Yeah. So you just make a Google search over there. Okay. You get the data set. You have 10 different ideas. You start applying those ideas on your data set and see what works. Through this process itself, I mean, this itself is a learning. You're going to learn a lot of things with this as well as you will probably achieve your goal probably faster than, you know, if you go the, go the long way and try to understand all the maths and you know, figure out all the I mean, that, that could There's no end to it
0: yeah I I think what really stands out with what you just said is basically kind of figure out a way to get the fundamentals under your belt but a huge emphasis on getting to that point where you have the ability to experiment and then just be like vicious about how much you get to experiment and there's no shortcuts like just remember that I I love that so much I think it's good to it's good to keep in the front of your mind you know when you're doing stuff like this.
1: Yeah. I mean, few things you you cannot get corners with. I mean, if yeah. you're you know, learning how to drive, you need to learn how to drive. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And actually some, something you kind of touched on when you were explaining that uh, was some things to kind of stay away from. And I was just wondering if we could kind of highlight that real quick. So if you're kind of, trying you're starting out on this journey or you're kind of trying to progress towards being able to prolifically experiment where are some landmines that maybe you can look out for and then completely avoid so maybe like the data pipeline piece like just have your resources for play play data don't don't try and go down that path or like what are some other areas you think would be like landmines or things to kind of stay away from, at least while you're trying to get this fundamental experimentation thingy under your belt?
1: Yeah, um, I, think, I think that's a really good question. Uh, so, so, you know, I think uh, the first landmine that probably, uh, you know, a lot of people actually come across is, I, I think it's, it's, it's a personal, what do you say? It's a personal thing that you, you see a lot of complexity You just raise your hands and you say, okay, I can't do it. So so I think this happens to a lot of people. So the first landmine you should avoid is your response, a response that you have probably learned from childhood, right? When you first, you know, got to know about what is math and physics and all that. We, We learn a response that as soon as we saw, see something, you know, some complexity be it maths or be it programming, we just say, oh, do so you have to learn to undo that natural response that you have Mm -hmm. and you have to keep telling yourself day in and day out that you can do it and there are people who are doing it of course of course you can do it as well okay so that's that's i think that's the first thing and because i have i've come across a lot of people who probably started off at the same time as i did but they sort of, you know, lost steam along the way. Okay. So, that is first. Then, second is, you know, getting into the technicalities. You know, like you said, you know, some things probably you should not be doing is. Uh, one thing that you should be really careful about, especially when you're doing, you know, you know time series prediction on stocks and cryptocurrencies, if somebody, I mean, if if something is giving you results which are too good to be true, then they are too good to be true.
0: A okay? <laughs> hundred and, yeah, 99% accuracy or something like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: If, if you have, I mean, it happened to a lot of people and I would say to some extent it happened with me as well. Yeah. If you, let's say you write a code or maybe you, you took some code from somewhere, from somebody's article, you know, whatever and you ran it and you saw like you're getting like, you know, 70, 80, you're making 80, 90% a month or you're doubling your money in a week, <laughs> then be assured that there's something absolutely completely wrong with it, okay? Yeah. So, so, so that's, it, it will give you a, you know, a quick euphoria and you will be tempted to, you know, put this thing in, you know, some kind of production environment, right? You actually start, you know, you're getting data from, from a live feed and say whether it's, you know, it's indicating to buy or sell and you actually put money in it, uh, I'm pretty sure you're going to lose. So, so if, if there's something out there which says it's too good to be you yeah, know it, it is. Okay, so just uh, either go through your methodology or go back to the drawing board. You know, you have to check things again. So, that's Second, mm-hmm. And then I think... Uh, another uh, point which is usually very uh, what i say underappreciated is how important is the reliability of a data pipeline okay. okay so so let's say you 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 know you tried 20 30 different ideas okay you you, you got those ideas and you tried all of those and maybe one, two, or three were really good on your data set that you downloaded from Kaggle. And now you're, you know, all set. You, you want to, you know, put money into this. The problem is to put this whole thing on a real-time system is not exactly straightforward, okay? And you need... To have data feed from somewhere, you need to be getting those, that data from somewhere and you have to make sure that your vendor is very reliable and the hardware wherever you are running, whether it's cloud or you know, personal server, it's all super reliable. When you're writing code for this kind of a system, make sure uh, to have a lot of try catch uh you know those <laughs> try catches because yeah if there is any error if if something goes wrong which I mean almost all the time you cannot predict what is going to be get wrong. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you have to have those safe fallbacks in your code itself to make sure that there's no eventually loss of capital because you're putting your real money in this. Okay. So this is like this is a real deal. Okay. It's a uh, a blue screen can actually ruin you financially.
2: Right. For real. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. <Okay.
1: laughs> so, so, so you have to make sure that your data pipeline is really good. So, so that's uh, okay. We, we went a little forward, and I started talking about production because that's the kind of challenges that I've been facing at the moment. Yeah. However, uh, there are a lot of uh, you know uh, things you have to be careful when you are you know, when you're actually building your model, when you're actually testing things out. And there's something called as, I mean, I'm going a little technical because, but I think this is very important for everyone to know this. There's something called as, uh, in trading, um, it's called look ahead bias. Okay. So look ahead bias is, you're predicting, mm, you know, you're predicting the uh, value of a stock using data that has not yet happened. Okay. So a very classic example of this of look-ahead bias is trading on the same day, uh, like, like you have, you know, you have your data set and you're in your code, you're trading on the same day using the closing price of the equity or Bitcoin. And this is a classic case of prepared bias. Why? Because the closing price of the day by definition is the last price before the market closes. And before the market closes, you cannot be trading using the closing price because that hasn't happened. You can do it in your test data set because you have all the history, but as soon as you put this model product in production, you know, it's you know it, it will you I mean you'll be sabotaged. Mm-hmm. so 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 look ahead bias is something that you need to be really careful about, and you need to make sure that it's not creeping in from any angle like when you're training your machine learning algorithms uh, you know you need to make sure that the data that they are seen to predict uh, you know the, the output is the data that has already happened and they are you know they are not you're using data that is that is yet to happen, so, mm-hmm. so that's that's something I would. Say. I mean, it's it get it can get a lot more subtle than this, but uh, look ahead bias is something you really watch out for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can give you a very good um, example of subtle look ahead bias. So, mm, okay, so what happens when you know every quarter? Uh, a company announces its uh, uh, quarterly earnings you know based on the earnings if you know if it meets or beats uh, analyst expectations you know the price will for a small amount of time it will you know it will just go up pretty quickly there's a spike in the price and then there's a trending upwards direction because the company has beaten analyst expectations and more profitable than the it's going to be and vice versa if it, if it failed to meet uh, analyst expectations, it's probably going to go mm-hmm. so, down. So, there are a number of trading strategies that utilize this situation where a company has you know, outperformed or uh, underperformed expectations of the analyst. The challenge with these strategies is when, at what point Should you count as t equal to zero? Okay. Like the announcement happened yesterday, and you know, like when the market closed, and today you started you start off with this you know strategy or a few days before or a few days after. So a subtle look-ahead bias is in this particular case that companies before they even uh, you, know, you know come out with their earnings, they actually announce on which date they are going to announce their earnings. So it's like an announcement of the announcement. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's an announcement of announcement when they're going to announce the earnings. And in the markets, when where the, you have these highly sophisticated algorithms and all these hedge fund guys, they actually start trading According to the ex- their expectations, when they do the announcement of the announcement, when the company does announcement of the announcement. So ideally, in an ideal situation, you would want to deploy this, you know, whatever strategy you have, which depends on earnings report, when the company makes the announcement of the announcement, because market starts to react from that time. That is the real T equal to zero. Mm. Okay. Uh, it's not when the actual announcement has happened because when the, by the time the actual announcement has happened, you know the smart players have already you know made their money right you're, you're late to the party by that time. Hmm. So, so so this is a sudden look ahead bias that happens and you have to be trading t equal to zero when the announcement of the announcement has happened and you know then you should at that point you should be deploying the strategy. So having said that, it is very difficult because getting this data is very difficult. There are like hundreds and thousands of companies. You might be probably trading with 10 or 15 or maybe more, depending upon you know what kind of stocks. you, know, you might be using going with you know low caps or mid caps. So you might be you know trading 50 companies. You know, you know, in a single you know, portfolio might be having 50 companies. So so tracking this uh, is is actually quite hard. And, and you know, the, this is one of the challenges that you face. So there are some providers which will provide you not just the earnings, you know, expecta- uh, announcements and whether they met expectations or not. They will also give you the date of the announcement of the announcement. Hmm. So you can, uh, will, you can test out your strategies. But of course, those da- uh, data providers are prohibitively expensive. I don't think, you know... If retail traders like us can even think of buying that kind of data. it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite expensive. It's for institutional investors, but this is a subtle example that I gave you. And there's, there's also a counter. There's also a way to counter this. If you want, I can also explain that.
0: What What <laughs> is it you were saying? Like, there, you said there's also you, what?
1: Yeah. If If you do not have. The information, like when the announcement of the announcement happened, and oh. you know, you're like, you're like a normal trader who's out there and who who gets to know. Okay, yesterday Amazon made their announcement and they you know made a lot of profit
2: mm-hmm.
1: and put in your you know trading. So so there's a way how to how to handle that. So of course you will be making a lot less profit, but you can still make a profit profit off all of that. And the way to do it is. Uh, there's uh there's something called as um, mean reversion strategies mm. so mean reversion strategies i mean it 's um it 's an umbrella term for a lot of sophisticated you know strategies i mean mean reversion can be very simple and can be very very complex so so think about mean reversion in this situation is that you had a price of a stock which was at some particular slope okay it will like probably going like this or like that or whatever slope and as soon as the announcement happened then think of it like you know like a string and there is like perturbation okay whether it like suddenly spiked up or suddenly spiked down so the chances are that it's going to continue in its direction whether it's like going trending up or whether it's trending down unless it's a bigger like, surprise right? so if if, if there's no earning surprise, it's probably going to continue, but there is going to be a perturbation. This perturbation happens because all the smart people actually started trading. I mean, hedge funds had been making their calls before this actually happened. And when the announcement comes, they probably, they're probably sold off or bought into their positions. Okay. And of course, then there are retail people like us. So this mm-hmm. perturbation after this, the stock is probably going to continue like this or this. So you can actually use this slope to your advantage and you can have a mean reversion strategy, which, which you say, okay, this is a slope and you know, my, the price went up a lot too much, it's going to come back, you know, it's going to follow this particular trend and you can then short it. You can have a short position or if you, you know, vice versa. If, it, if the price went too low, you can again short it based on that trend line, based on that script. So, so yeah, that's one strategy for everyone who is, is watching it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the strategy you can apply.
0: Yeah, what I'm, getting, what I'm getting out of what you're saying is not only is it good to kind of get these fundamentals of data science under your belt, but then when you go to apply them, like if you're interested in time series and forecasting uh, time series, having some domain expertise is also kind of part of, I mean it shouldn't be overlooked is kind of what i'm was kind of what i'm getting out of it
1: yeah i mean it's absolute must i would say especially mm. in stocks it's absolute must
0: yeah that's th- thanks for sharing that uh let's see here what was what would you say is the because i know you have experience building uh high performance teams and i was wondering what was your biggest learning experience so far that you've had in kind of assembling those teams?
1: Uh, Okay, yeah, that's that's a good question. So, uh, see, when you're building a team, uh, you know, where they're going to be 10, 15, 20, the last time I was leading a team, I had almost 30 people, you know, working. First thing that you should be really... um, that should be your highest priority is the kind of culture you want to foster in a team. Okay.
0: I mean, it's just
1: my personal take. Yeah, I have met people who would say that, okay, they want to give more importance to skills or to you know, education and university and all of that. But I think the first and the most important part when you're building a team is the kind of culture you want to have in the team. And this is something that, as a manager, you should be asking yourself, okay, before you even you know start off with this. And you have to be like really clear about it. Probably, you probably might just you know you want to probably write it down to yourself that what kind of a team I want, what kind of people I want in the team. But you know, you. I mean, it's it's very important that you have people that gel well together, who are cooperative. And there's no, you know, too much competition and backbiting and politics and a lot of things. So once you have decided the kind of culture you would want to have in your team, then you should actually start building a team. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. that's like the first thing that you should think about. And once you are clear with this then when you're actually, you know, meeting people, you know, probably going to colleges, you know, career fairs and all that, you you know, meeting new guys, that is something you should be very consciously keep in your mind that, you know, a guy might be or or a girl might be really good, but if they do not fall in that, you know, um, cultural space, then they are not worth it. I mean, I have not found a single exception in my experience or in you know a lot of other managers uh, who who follow this philosophy. That uh, you know, once you have a have a particular culture in your mind, you want to hire people like that. And if you there's nobody you know so smart or so uh, you know intelligent who deserves to be in a team who doesn't fit in the, with the culture fitting with the culture is like, is the absolute important hmm. and when you are hiring look for people who are going to fit and and then once you have a team ready of course you should give weightage to skills as well you cannot be just you know hiring people The uh, the third thing, the second thing that comes in the priority is, of course, the skills. You should have those required skills as well. And you should also look, you know, uh, I always personally try to keep a mix of people, usually two kinds of people. I I do not look at their qualification or their age. I want to have two kinds of people one kind of one people, you know, one particular category of people who already know stuff. Okay, who know what they have to do. Okay, who, who are, from, from, this, from a point of view of skills, who are a very good match, okay? And the second type of people are those people who are willing to learn, okay? These are the guys who actually bring uh, energy to your, to your team. These are the guys, you know, who keep things alive.
2: Who keep hmm.
1: everybody motivated. People who are willing to learn, who are willing to you know go that extra mile who are willing to you know maybe sacrifice a few weekends maybe mm-hmm. but I mean that's not expected but but the people who are willing to learn okay they are they are uh, in in my particular uh, uh, experience I found that they over a period of time they tend to outperform guys who had a good skill set but you know they were sort of uh, happy with where they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's these people who actually make a difference who are going to make a difference in your team so so yeah so getting these kind of people and yeah once you have these two set of people I think then you know once you have a team the biggest problem you're going to face is people fight yeah no matter how much you know uh, you know cultural fit and skill fit or whatever you're going to do people are going to fight yeah and and people will try to you know i mean if if you have a big team people try to do politics it's, it's something that is it's not something that you cannot uh, that you can avoid it's unavoidable mm-hmm. so as as the as a manager i i think it this is something which which goes from top to bottom if if your team feels that you're not a person who gives any weightage to any kind of you know just kind of you know politics happening around and you. You're just you know you don't really care about it. They would stop doing it. Hmm. In my experience, the teams where you know which are difficult to work with are probably because the managers you know they they just let things be. They do not take a call. You know they do not take put their foot down and. Uh, if, as a manager, you have decided that you want, you do not want this kind of stuff happening around, and you want everybody to be motivated, now you have to, you know, be that kind of a person. And once you are that kind of a person, everybody else follows. No matter, no matter who they are, they, they just follow them. Mm. It's, it's, I think it's, it's it's human behavior. And and once you have this. You know no nonsense approach going on. you know work happens, and people make great things so yeah
0: no that that's a really that's a really cool response so basically, like if I'm hearing you correctly, basically, you structure these teams in a way where there's some there's some people that have room to grow, but they're eager to learn, and then you yeah. make sure that you have kind of like the mentor figures in place too and kind of that's your your algorithm to get cause over the long term the ones that are eager to grow end up having like a like a crazy like a more uh, productive trajectory or something if i'm hearing you correctly and then just the manager has the potential to set the tone for the entire team for better or worse
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah that's uh, i like how you said it <laughs> yeah the manager can, can make a lot
0: of difference. Man, that, that's, a, that's a really cool take. Um, I I am not a manager of a team, but I'm always kind of curious. Periodically, I'll get people on the show that have have that type of expert, that expertise, and it's really interesting, because it's, it's unique by the manager, but there's certainly something to learn there. So thanks for sharing that.
1: You're welcome,
0: thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, what are like three tips you have for people on uh marketing themselves as software developers if or if you have like a better answer for data science professionals i kind of look they're kind of in a similar bucket or how how do you how would you handle that that question i guess
1: three tips to market themselves
0: yeah in the tech world i guess
1: um, in the tech world so i think that's a that's is that too big (laughs) <laughs> yeah but but i'll try to answer I'll try to answer okay. both from from a software engineer guide and from a data scientist perspective okay so for, for a software engineer I think one thing which is common between the both is if you want to really impress someone uh, you should have some per se you you should have already built something which is which is of uh, you know, great perceived value. So, if you are a software engineer, you know, try to make sure that you have some projects under your belt, okay, uh, which which are cool, which make you know, which make sense. And apart from that, I think today really, uh, the way companies are hiring has changed a little bit, and uh, you know, it's not just about the projects that you have done and the kind of you know skills that you have the kind of different technologies you are fluent with, of course that's like a baseline you have to be fluent with whatever technologies are there in your field, but something uh, you know different that you can do from most of the other people in today's world is you can actually start sharing that information and you know you do not have to wait for. For that, you know, situation to come where you're looking for a job and then you're, you know, producing content, but you can just do it as, as, you know, as part of your daily, you know, being and you mm-hmm. should start spreading information. And the best way to do it is in, in these times is start a Medium blog, start writing on Medium or maybe start your own blog if you, if you fancy or, you know. Our YouTube channel so
0: mm-hmm.
1: so so whatever you're learning I mean some of the best engineers that I've come across uh, not only personally but people that I follow on, on the net uh, they you know they are fluent bloggers they are fluent you know, uh, you know youtubers they, they they put things out there okay so this is a big this becomes like a big uh, you know stamp of authority on your skill set. and then I mean, if I know somebody who, you know, who wants, who has applied for a software engineer, I see that okay, this guy has been writing blogs. Maybe you know, this has he has a number of projects on GitHub. So GitHub profiles are the new resume. Mm-hmm. So uh, like people are saying a lot these days that GitHub profile is actually your resume if you're applying for these kind of jobs. So you know, I'll probably go and check out. They come into history, you know how much how much they have been with code, because it it, it is important. And how green their are, heat
0: how green their heat map yeah. is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so how, how green is that? And of course, uh, how much uh, you know if they have blog or you know these kind of you know if they're putting out information that mm. gives me a, a confidence that okay this guy probably knows whatever he's talking about. Yeah. so that's that's for I would say for software engineer okay of course when you're doing your projects you know there can be a number of things you know, we can talk about but but that's like a you know high you know, what you say 30,000 feet view of this yeah then for data scientists I think probably it's a little easier
0: really uh, okay
1: I mean easier in terms of what they have to do not not the things that they're doing themselves. Right. it's of course hard yeah.
2: uh,
1: but it's, it's like a little straightforward I think mm-hmm. I use the wrong word it's not easier it's more straightforward okay so so as a data scientist create a profile on Kaggle start participating in Kaggle competitions they start uh, you know uh, putting up Kaggle kernels and these days they also have this data set category you can, and if you have if you're scraping data from somewhere start posting it in the data set, category and start building up your what you say, rep, reputation, on on Kaggle. Mm. That I think, I mean, it's like a show shot way at the moment. If you are a Kaggle master or a grandmaster, jobs will come to you. You don't have to go anywhere. Mm. And in, in, I mean, in data science particularly, even if you're not writing any blog. And you are a Kaggle Grandmaster, I mean, you're done. Mm. You, you'll, have, you'll be having offers lined up. There's, there's no end to it. Uh, I have not met a single Kaggle master who is unemployed, like
0: who, is, <laughs> who, who doesn't Just have saying. a job. Offer. Just <laughs> saying. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 for data scientists, I think uh, building up their reputation in Kaggle is absolute super important. Mm-hmm. Then they can go the regular path. They can you know, do a lot of projects. Of course, they can fill up their GitHub with all those green heat maps. And then they can write a lot of blogs. I mean, I come across a lot of, I personally read a lot of blogs from a lot of data scientists because they are very, really informative. And, and these guys actually like to share the information. It's mm-hmm. not like that, they, you know, they figured out a method, they figured out a technique, and they you know, they just keep it to themselves. No, they just give it out. Hmm. So and, and that seems to be working for them. So so I would say that you know if you if you're a data scientist and you really want to market yourself well, number one is Kaggle, and then your blogs, and of course your projects. So yeah. projects have to be there, of course. But uh, blogs and Kaggle is, I think, it's everything right now at the moment for for data scientists.
0: Dang, yeah, that's thanks for answering that. That's, I think, people can hear that part and really run with it. Uh, I was curious as far as your favorite resources, I know you'd mentioned uh, that the, the Towards Data Science is a really cool uh, place to get re- learning resources. Udacity has some cool courses and not always do they even cost money. Uh, yeah, do you yeah. have any other favorite resources I was uh, fishing around for that maybe people could uh, leverage?
1: Uh. If they are learning, in that case, I think Medium and Udacity, probably they can check out other websites, similar websites like Coursera and Udemy, mm. probably find some good courses over there. But Udacity in, in in my experience is like a sure shot thing, like if they have a course, it has to be a quality course. They, they do not produce bad quality content. Okay, it's, it's, just, it's just not their philosophy. So with Udacity, you're sure that because at the end of the day, you spend certain you're going to spend certain amount of precious time on that course, and you know probably you're you're working and you're coming in the evenings and you're you you're spending that time of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be really sure that wherever you're spending that time is is really worth it. Okay, you don't want to be Doing a course, which turns out to be, you know, not good. Yeah. So, so in that case, I would say Udacity uh, is is a hands down winner for me. And uh, Medium blogs, there is of course towards data science. There's, I think, um, words human AI or something. Some, there are a number of you know these publications on Medium uh, that you can you can check it out and yeah i think i think they, they, these two are good enough however uh i use a particular trick when uh, you know when i am looking for for information or, or when i started to look out for you know interesting and you know important blogs mm-hmm. so so on medium uh if you if you just you know look out for you know how to you know, how to build an LSTM or how to build a CNN classifier, really like hundreds of articles. However, you should try to f- find those people, those authors who have written a series of articles, blogs on a particular topic. Okay? Mm-hmm. Not, not like, you know, different uh, blogs on different topics, no. Like starting with, uh, think about. Uh, how to implement CNN's part one, how to implement CNN's part two, part three, part four. Mm. Guys who are writing these kind of series, they actually, you know, follow a certain way of thinking and they actually want to teach you something. They're not just doing it for the sake of writing a blog. And these are the guys you should, you know, just immediately press the follow button. They are totally worth following. Mm. Um, On on Medium, this has really worked, worked worked out well for me. That's that's I think uh, is one, and then um, uh, if you, um, another trick that you can use is follow blogs of companies which are doing good in AI. Starting from of course Google, Facebook. Check out some more niche companies like um, uh, like I recently came across Floyd Hub. Floyd Hub is is a company that provides you online cloud computational stuff, AI infrastructure you can use the cloud and train your models. Hmm. Floyd Hub blogs are big. Check out those. And then another trick (laughs) that I employ is I follow a particular big names in the field of AI on Twitter and on LinkedIn if they, are on, if they are active on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. okay? So these guys, what they do is, if they come across something really interesting, they tend to retweet it, okay? And that's how you actually start, you know, growing your network of, uh, you know, this in, information sourcing. So, so you follow these guys, they'll probably someday reshare or retweet something uh, related to probably a good blog or a good post related to something related, uh, uh, on machine learning or AI, you, you you know, you get that. You check out that blog post. Of course, it is good. Once that blog post is good, you see what that guy has, you know, posted otherwise. If you like that, take subscribe. try. Mm. Okay. I mean, so that's all, how that's all you get uh, those, what I call as boutique blogs. Okay, these are not medium blogs that you can just go and search and on medium you find them these all these boutique bloggers writing boutique blogs which which is not you know very apparent on google if you make a search it probably you know, it's not it won't be there on the first page but they they are producing quality content and they have a very loyal set of readers with them so so yeah so that's that's another way of getting to these people so 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 answer your question my favorite is of course medium and audacity okay. mm-hmm. but this is how I've grown, you know. My source of my whole knowledge sphere.
2: Yeah.
1: You follow those guys on Twitter. From Twitter, you get those blog posts, and then it, it gets it becomes a loop. Then then it, it becomes easy. Yeah,
0: that's that's really cool. Uh, thanks for sharing. I think I think a lot of us are guilty of just going to like that first, maybe the second page <laughs> of the Google search, <laughs> yeah. you know. But I mean, what you're talking about is kind of a, another way of. Uh, just sifting through all the craziness going on on the internet and really getting down to the, to the uh, high quality content. And so I think there's something there for folks to learn. I I think that's really cool that you kind of have like the pattern that I'm getting here is you have systems or algorithms in place for a lot of things, information <laughs> gathering, you know, yeah. trading, um, managing teams. And I think like if we were talking meta meta on this interview, like, <laughs> you know, Ray Dalio, he has that book called principles, yes. uh, Ray and, and he's, he kind of talks about that, how like the, everything in life is a machine and machines interacting with machines. And so I think, uh, you might've I, I don't know, uh, you guys are sharing notes or something like that. So.
1: <laughs> I wish, I seriously wish, but yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah No, I um, know. But that that was a, a really cool book, I thought, too. Um, man, I had a question right here. What is the biggest focus that you could achieve that is kind of standing in your way of becoming like a Kaggle Grandmaster? Like what domino do you need to push over to kind of, to to achieve that?
1: Wow. Oh wow, that's that's a hard one.
0: That's a hard one.
1: Uh, yeah. So I think I think I think it's it's just a matter of I think the biggest domino I have in that path is myself. I just mm. have to get in that zone and you know tell myself that I have to spend two hours every day on cattle, no matter what. It's like it's like you know, you you know when you take a resolution on the 31st December or, or 1st January that you have to go to gym every day, mm-hmm. and some people actually do it. So, <laughs> so, so, so it's it's like that. It's it's gym. I mean, Kaggle is like a gym for data science, and you have to make sure that you are doing it every day. Spend you are spending some time. I mean. You do not have to be, you know, coding, through you know, throughout the week two hours. No, nobody can do that. It's not possible. But it's it's just like logging into the website and sitting for maybe two hours or one hour. So, so I think at this time, uh, I think the biggest roadblock I have is my own habit i would say. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hopefully, yeah. Now that I've talked about it, and now that I've, I'm talking it to you, probably I'll try to correct myself, and you know be more regular on kaggle and start participating in competitions
0: yeah that no that's awesome and actually kind of like the hidden the 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 hidden uh, edge i guess that you have in that is that you have clarity on where you want to go like not only not only do you know where you need to go but now you have this commitment of like okay i need to be doing these 2 hour things and now i kind of get it cuz you had mentioned in the pre interview what is a, a, a daily non-negotiable for you? And you had said your time. So kind of, if I understand yeah. that correctly, it's like, like if you, like your daily non-negotiable for is, is basically like this Kaggle thing, for example, and it's going to be different for everyone, but it, you would be wise to implement these things if you're serious about knocking over these big dominoes. And right. uh, yeah, so that's, I, I, I always envy people that have like that, that extreme clarity, you know, on their goals because I, I mean, I, I'd like to think I have clarity on my goals, but, um, I don't know. I always feel like it could be more clear, more kind of, you know, structured. And so I, I, it's nice to see that you have clarity with your goals. That's really cool. It's inspiring to me.
1: Thanks. That's a, that's a pretty <laughs> interesting observation, actually. <laughs> I didn't think about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're. There, there's, uh, there. I mean, I, I, I don't really have much more to add other than, uh, yeah. Keep up the the good work with the clarity. Like even when you were talking about there, there was a segment we were talking about before where you're talking about with the culture and writing down, like making sure you have that culture. How you want to have that structured before you even go out and start building the team. It's a very similar thing. Like you need to have clarity on where you're trying, what what you're trying to do with your team or with your time. And once you have that achieved, then you can go full speed ahead. Otherwise, I don't know where, I don't know how that's gonna end up. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: so yeah, that's cool, man. That thanks thanks for sharing. And also I'll I will share this with you. Um doing these podcasts, uh, I was kind of coached to like, like if I'm talking more than like, you know, five percent of the time, I'm doing a bad job as a podcast host. So I I have the ability to um well, sometimes there's an advantage in being like a backseat driver, like while you're talking, I get to kind of like look at the the meta of how you're structuring your answers and stuff. And so, and and then I get these little moments of clarity that I'll share with you, you know, like, that's really cool that you have, you know, this clarity with your goals. And I think everybody should aspire to that if they're struggling with that, because it makes it so much easier to go forward. Anyway, I digress.
1: You know, that, that that that's pretty fascinating i, I think i it's think pretty cool that you you actually condensed a lot of things in a very eloquent manner so very it's
0: impressive. it's it's certainly a luxury to be uh you know i'm not I'm not in the hot seat here, so you're doing a great <laughs> job too <laughs> 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 so uh let's see i i had a, just a couple more questions. how are we doing on time i know we're we're kind of going a little long here. Should I should I start to wrap it up or can I uh blast through a couple more questions?
1: I mean up to you. I mean I have I have another 30 minutes so
0: on. No okay. Yeah, I think we can uh we'll we'll try and do this uh keep it under 30, I guess. So, um what what decision or what was the decision like to change your initial career aspiration as a full-time musician to an engineer?
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, okay, that's a, <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> So, <clears throat> so yeah, I uh, as a child I was like pretty fascinated by you know all these rock bands and just like you know most of the teenagers, and you know I would be trying to play guitar and learning guitar and uh, I learned guitar how to play guitar and I was pretty pretty much like into it. I, I used to have really long hair like till my waist you, you Rockstar here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so but but what i realized over time was that i was good at it when if i look at it from you know from a regular everyday perspective it, i i would say this is more about realizing your own uh, limitations and being very self aware so so i had a few moments of say self awareness well, I figured that okay, I am pretty good at it. You know, I can, you know, I can go to parties and you know entertain people for a while and get a lot of compliments. Uh, so, so that that is one thing. But then, you know, coming up with, you know, let's say like a sweet child of mine or whole California, you know, or you know these kind of songs is, we, I mean, it's more than just you know, playing it well. It's something else that probably cannot be, you know, described in words, but, you know, what they call it as X-Factor or whatever you want to call it. There's there's something more to it. And I kind of felt that, you know, it's probably not not for me at some point of time, which was pretty bad. It was a very sad realization. But I did figure that you know, if I go down this path, then you know I mean, probably I just end up being average or maybe below average. I don't know I'm not saying that I'm pretty exceptional at the moment, but <laughs> but but with that, it was probably gonna be really bad yeah so, so so I found that you know just uh, you know copying somebody else's songs and playing it out doesn't really makes you a musician it's you know you're good at it good at the instrument but coming out coming up with your own music which is as good you know probably at that time which is i felt that it's it's not it's not something i would like to go on with it Mm -hmm. maybe if i someday you know make a lot of money trading (laughs) trading stocks you know maybe probably probably i'll try and get back to it but uh at that time I figured that no, it's just not for me. So so hmm. that's when I said that, okay, I need to focus on the other thing that I'm really good at is, is and that's engineering engineering. So 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 that's how that's how my life happened.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, that I mean that's a whole can of worms. We could probably spend some time uh just talking about like how do you you know, how do you cut your or, or kill your darlings? I've I've kind of heard it explained like you said it was kind of tough. You were, you know, it wasn't like a happy conversation you had with yourself. Like, you know, maybe I need to go down a different path or something like that. So that's always tough, but I do, I can appreciate the self-awareness piece. Like, could you imagine just ignoring that and kind of just, you know, it's, it's crazy how though Ray Dalio talks about this in his book, like, like in life we just have these choices and we have to make the best choice with the, the information that we have at the time. But really, like our whole life is just this chain of choices and outcomes and you, just, you have to be good at making choices. And yeah, I, I, can, I can respect everything you just said. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I was curious, how did you overcome your early life discomfort with math? Um, okay.
1: Okay uh so um, so so how I would put it is like initially i was you know your your responses to different situations
2: mm-hmm.
1: are not only uh primed by your own response to the situation it they are also primed by how you have seen other people respond to that, those situations. So, so, I mean, while growing up, I had seen a lot of people, you know, respond in a way that people do when they see maths. Okay. It's a, it's a a very, I think it's a universal response. Okay. I'm Keep it, keep it away from me.
2: Yeah.
1: I don't (laughs) want to do it. Yeah. However, at the same time, uh, I had been doing a lot of things which were quite sciencey. Yeah, and uh, you know, a lot of technical, I won't say exactly technical, but a lot of you know maker stuff that you do as a you know if you want to as a as a school kid. Mm-hmm. So so I, I figured that okay, I'm I'm pretty good at applying things, but if maths is like something which is not really you know coming to me because probably I was responding to maths the way everybody had been responding. And that's how I learned how to respond. I never really tried to, you know, probably you know get into it. So, so at some point of time, I figured that, you know, being scared of <laughs> maths is not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. And I actually have to get into it and, you know, wade my way through, and anything is—is this—is it has a lot to do with your, uh, you know, mental makeup. Then, than your IQ or you know whatever intelligence you have from birth, however hmm. so people want to put it. it. It has a lot to do with how you look at things. Okay, it's, it's, it has a lot with how you are how you are primed to see things. So, so a, a very good example is let's say if uh I mean, of course, it's not a generalization, but probably that let's say if if I was uh you know if if a child is born uh to parents who have been Olympic athletes, okay so to that child, doing things which involve a lot of physical you know um, physical you know strength comes easy because. It's not because probably he's very strong, but because he had that makeup that, you know, my parents are so strong. So, you know, I'm also that level of strong. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you have, you know, of course, this is not a generalization in any manner, but I'm just trying to put you in that you know, thought process that you mm-hmm. know, if, if your parents are, you know, if a child's parents are you know, engineers, they're techies. To that kid, maths and science comes easy because, He has seen his parents react in a very, you know, in a very positive way when it comes to math and science compared to that kid whose parents are athletes, who has seen his parents say, okay, we don't even know what math is. Okay. And the vice versa is true for this kid whose parents are techies. And, you know, he say, okay, go run, you know, five miles and, you know, do it every day. He's like, dude, (laughs) I can't do it. He can do it, but, it's, it's his mindset so I think in, in my case also it was all it's, it's all about mindset it's just being in that mindset that whatever you're doing is not that hard people have been doing it right I mean people have been doing it so of course it's doable so you have to put yourself in that mindset and mm. and I think the initial uh, when, I, when I was doing engineering I I mean I, I probably sort of waded through this but when I started off with learning machine learning and data science I I told myself that I'm not going to shy away from maths instead I'm actually going to dive into maths and figure out things no, no matter what it takes right? you have to have that no matter what it takes approach right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: no hostages there's got <laughs> there to be no maths hostages you know? yeah. so, so so you have to be in that Mind frame, and once you're in that mind frame, it doesn't matter whether it takes like four hours or four days to understand a concept. You'll do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you're not in that mind frame, even like if you sit for thirty minutes, you're or maybe in five minutes, you just look at an equation and say, "Okay, no, I want to do data science without maths." Yeah, so.
0: <laughs> man, I I feel like you're reading my my notes here because you set yourself perfectly up for the next question, which is. What is kind of your best piece of advice on becoming fearless with these sort of things?
1: Wow! So, uh, so I have had a number of experiences outside of my professional life where I primed my own thinking and did things that I probably would not have done it. Mm-hmm. Done. So, uh, so what? A way to be fearless. Uh, you know is to have it's like imagine like you know you have those effects in your movies when there's like like in Matrix there's this one guy you know going in then it suddenly divides into two guys. okay that that virus so guy mm-hmm.
2: so,
1: so you have to be that kind of person in your head so you're just one person who is looking at whatever situation and You have always been fearful of that. You have to, you know, divide yourself in two people. And this second person in your head has to look at this first person who is fearful of those things. And he has to look at those, this person and those situations, those things in an objective manner and has to tell this person, which is you, that, okay, this is not probably not that difficult. You probably have been, you know, fearing this. Yeah, I don't know, maybe all your life. You know, it's not like it. You know, people have been probably people have probably done it, or you can do it. And whatever you are fearing is is irrational. So you need to have this third person in your head who tells you that you know whatever you are responding to this particular situation is just a response that has been primed in your head. And that's not how it's supposed to be. I mean, it doesn't have to be like that.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: so I, I read some. Uh, I don't know. Somewhere I read that you know humans. Uh, it's, it's in uh, context of math and physics that humans have a general tendency to you know uh, look away when, whenever they see these complex math equations. You know, but quantum physicists or theoretical physicists. Have actually primed their mind to not give that kind of a response whenever they see a complex math equation. It's not that that they do not, I mean, it, it just comes to them or they just you know see through it. No, it's not like that. They're also humans. They right. also have to put their mind to it. But that initial response that you have in your head that tells you to, you know, not do it or you know, move away from it, they have sort of their mind not to think like that. Hmm. So so the so the way to be fearful, I mean fearless about something or you know, being fearless is recognize things that make you that stop you from achieving your goals and ask yourself why you're not doing this or why you're not doing those things. And if you think that okay you have a lot of uh, doubt in your head. I mean, people have a lot of doubt before starting something whether I believe it or not. Mm. You have to be that third person, second person in your head which tells you that dude, this is just irrational. Mm. It is happening because you haven't done it. It's how your body responds when it comes into a, you know, you know what, uh, uncomfortable situation. It's a natural response. It's just a response. It's not a fact. It's not an Actuality. Okay. Mm. So you can work on this. So that's that's my advice.
0: Yeah, that that's a cool metaphor with kind of uh splitting yourself into uh, a, a few people. Um thanks thanks for sharing that, man. That's really cool. Uh I will certainly be like some sometime uh when I get in my infinite spare time, I wanna hack up these podcasts into you know like really concentrated nuggets. And uh, I'll be coming back for this little segment. And uh, so, thank you for sharing that.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks. Uh,
0: so, I know you had kind of mentioned that you'll you'll trade uh, Bitcoin, but in general, do you think blockchain is an eye roller or a game changer?
1: Wow, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. So. <clears throat> Uh, well, it depends how you, how you look at, it. okay, um, so, so of course, blockchain has two aspects to it. One is being a monetary store of value, which is Bitcoin, or being that Web 3.0, which is, you know, Ethereum and US, Tron and you know, all, all those, all those technologies and coins. So so to me, I think, I don't know, I mean, I'm a little divided on, on this front, but I do see that if if not in long term, probably in sh- maybe short term, maybe in the next five to 10 years, I don't know about Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin will be there, I mean, Bitcoin is Okay, I don't know about Bitcoin, but I think if they're able to scale Ethereum, it is going to have an insane amount of applications that we have not even thought of at this point of time. So, I mean, for me, Web 3.0 is, I don't know, probably it is because i you know, I come from an engineering background. I'm not exactly a finance guy. So, so Web 3.0 is a lot more exciting then, you know, blockchain or these cryptocurrencies being a financial store of value, primarily because if you look at how, how things are going in the world at the moment, if you look at the geopolitical scenario, you look at what's happening in you know, China and what happened in Chile and Spain and even in India, I mean, governments everywhere are actually trying to suppress Whatever they are not comfortable with mm-hmm. and and these days Internet has become a big tool to you know control the masses if you want you know you can be you know, throwing away fake news on social media or you can just turn off internet. I mean India was uh, the number one in recent survey the country that turned off internet you know, I don't know, probably a few hundred times in 2019. Because Hmm. there have been so many protests for all sorts of reasons, and and government has sort of realized that if you want to curb a protest, turn off the internet, no WhatsApp, no Facebook, no communication. That's it. Go Hmm. back to (laughs) nineteen (laughs) nineties. It's crazy.
0: It's crazy. There's a light switch out there for that.
1: So in this kind of a situation, think about having an uncensorable, non you know unstoppable platform which Web 3.0 promises, which is what, which is the promise of Ethereum. Think about a messaging app that you cannot shut down. Think about a blogging platform where you cannot censor. You know, you cannot censor free voice. You cannot censor free, you know, free thoughts. Because even on Facebook, I see a lot. I mean, Facebook has become the go-to social media for all the political parties to start manipulating people. I I think it's happening across the world Mm now. And I mean, think about a platform which does not use advertising to sustain itself. The biggest, what you say, the original sin of the internet was to sustain itself and to grow through advertising. Trust me, that was the worst thing that they did.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: all the kind of nonsense that is happening right now in the world is because of that model where you'll be selling ads and using that revenue to fund your infrastructure and your technology with web 3.0 you have that what do you say you have that um, promise of being able to generate revenue through your tokens through the value of your own token on your network and not be dependent on ads i think i think it's a revolution whenever that happens An internet which does not depend on advertising is, is like, you know, it's like the invention of wheel. It's like the invention of electricity. It is, it is that, I mean, I mean, I just get goosebumps talking about it. So I I think that is, uh, Web3.2 excites me, somehow it excites me a lot more than, than uh, cryptos having being a a monetary store of value, Mm -hmm. however, it's, it's cyclic in nature, because web3.0 depends on tokens and tokens have a value so it's so it's not you know it's not disconnected right but promise of web3 i think it's 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 insane it's hmm. incredible.
0: yeah thank thanks for sharing that because i don't know i th- i think anybody that has has sort of bitcoin or blockchain technologies they kind of i mean i'm guilty of this too it's like oh th- like you can invest in those right well Like there's, there's actually like a reason for this technology. They're all unique in their technology. And that's what you're excited about is what it sounds like. The, the technology that the token kind of supports, I guess is okay, cool. Yeah. That's really cool, man. Thanks for sharing. Um, what languages should people be looking into in 2020 on their quest to make money with their skills?
1: Well, I think it's a no-brainer yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so could so you I argue said, like JavaScript too or or i'll, let, I'll here just carry on uh, ignore my remarks <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so so, so uh, how I would frame my answer is what is the what is the top uh, you know hottest job in 2020 hottest job in 2020 is from, is data science is being an ai engineer? How do you do data science in AI? You do it through Python. And so so that that makes a big case for it. Yeah. And then, no matter what you want to do, you can do all kinds of fancy systems programming using Python. Okay? You do not need to move to any other language. Even if you're making web apps, you can use Django, Python-based framework, you can use Flask. So JavaScript just stays for the front end. That's what it was probably made for. Maybe I don't Mm -hmm. know why they made it, but (laughs) so 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 I mean I personally I mean just my personal opinion I'm not a big fan of JavaScript so Mm -hmm. so so JavaScript just stays for the for the front end everything else I think Python is there and even uh, I think Arduino are probably working or they have come out with a uh, with a chip that you can program using uh, this embedded version of Python so 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 Python is now going there as well okay. So, so I think Python just spins hands down. You probably need a little bit of JavaScript to make your website or app, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: beyond that, Python will do everything. For
0: yeah. And especially from the data science end, I mean, go to the Kaggle website and uh, like that's the only place you, the only way you're going to be able to hang around those parts is if you've got some, some Python under your belt. Cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I was curious, I had two questions left. What are the most important couple of books that you have read? And then I have kind of another question like this. Uh,
1: Okay. So, so that's a, that's a hard question because I tend to read a lot through my sources of information that I discussed, Mm -hmm. but I'm not much of a book reader, but I do have read a few books. I think the uh, the one that read a uh, that left a very big impact on my on my you know, psyche was A Brief History of Time from Stephen Hawking. Okay, I, I read it when I was in I think eighth grade, and that that really fired me up about this whole you know what do you say tech scene, universe, physics, all the meta stuff. Hmm. So, so, so I think that book had had a very big impact on me, and, and then uh, later on, I read a book in uh, physics. Uh, it, it was uh, it's called uh, I think it's just called Physics. It's it's written by Halliday, Resnick, and Walker. So this this book, uh, this book from Halliday, Resnick is I think it's a it's a bible. I mean, if somebody wants to start off with, um, what do you say, high school physics or like, I don't know what, what they call it, college level, basic college level physics. Mm-hmm. So, Harry Resnick is one book that really, you know, turned my head mm. in the right direction. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, 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 I think these, these books really, really had a big impact. Uh, I'm not much of a literature reader, but I have, I mean, to my credit, I've read all the Harry Potter books from one to seven. Okay. <laughs> so, and and the Vinci quote from Dan Brown. So, so yeah, I've, I've been there, but not really done that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I never get the same book. Every time I ask, there's always a different book. Um, what are, I guess the last question for you here is, uh, <laughs> sorry, I sorry to do this to you at the end. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, oh. you were gonna get off easy with the last question, but uh
1: <laughs> Okay. So 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 it's it's kind of related to to a discussion we had you know a few minutes ago about being fearless and overcoming maths and all that. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I think in my particular case like a very particular case a very good piece of advice I had was from my own friend in school who was really good with maths like he's still very good with maths like he's crazy good right mm-hmm. those gifted people so 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 I so whenever you know we, we are doing some math sums uh, I would kind of you know if it goes beyond two or three levels I, I kind of stop right I mean, if I'm not able to solve in like two or three lines then I yeah, this is not not going anywhere. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll wait for the solution. I'll wait for the instructor and teacher. Partner. But but what he one one day what he told me was he, he noticed that what I was doing was right. Uh, there was some hard problem, and I think you we were in grade tenth or eleventh. I think we were in grade ten. 10 I think. And um, and there was this hard problem, and I had started off correctly, and then I stopped in the second step because of course my usual response was this is not happening so so he said that you know whenever you uh, you know you, the the math problem starts getting tougher or whenever you see it, it starts getting longer don't stop he, he just said that that, that those were his words right? you should you don't stop whenever you feel that the problem is going to get longer and that i think i sort of kind of you know, imbibed in my, probably in my whole being, <laughs> I how to put it, But, but it, it, I think it's applicable at a lot, you know, many meta levels. That whenever you think things are not going well or things are you know, tough, don't
0: stop. Yeah, dang, that's. Freaking awesome. That's how you end a podcast right there, folks. <laughs> don't stop. <laughs> yeah, don't stop. <laughs> so uh, actually, the, uh, where what's like a call to action uh, that you have for folks? Is there a place that we should send them if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, do you do you have, I have a GitHub and a LinkedIn link. Is there any other call to action that you want to share with the audience? Uh,
1: no, I, I think, yeah, I think I'm good with my LinkedIn and my GitHub. Okay. Simple math. I, I, I'm i not still very, you know, out there on Kaggle, so two things are good for me.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Excellent. And then, um, yeah, other than that, did we leave anything out of the interview that we need to cover? I know we covered a lot. I think I'm going to start okay. changing these to like the, the the meeting invite to like an hour and a half or something. I can never get it to an hour and I always feel like a goofball because, you know, we're going on almost two hours here. so. But um, yeah. Did, yeah. did you was there anything else on the table that you wanted to uh, discuss, or or did we do a good job?
1: Uh, I, I think I think we we did an excellent job. I, I I myself didn't expect to, you know, to come out with so many things that we discussed today. So yeah. Yeah. This yeah. this was
0: really cool, man. I I really enjoyed this interview. So uh, with that being said, I guess we'll just uh, shut it down here, and we'll make sure you got the links to to uh, reach out to Pranjal, if you choose to do so.
1: Cool, so, thanks. All right, thanks. thanks Ben yep. for inviting me, thank you.
0: Yep, thank you Pranjal.